0: mm. Oh, this is so loud. But I think it's fine. Hello. Hello.
1: Hello, and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, the podcast. Yes. I'm Tegan.
0: And I am Joram. Yeah. And we're both both a little bit tired. I just try to. I'm always tired. That's true. But I just try to to get a baby um, sleepy and bring him to bed, and um, he didn't want to. He yeah. was super hyper. I actually made him climb up um, a set of a flight of stairs several times <laughs> in a row to tie him out. It didn't work. I it's like you put in fresh batteries just before going to bed.
1: They have more energy than us. That's the problem, right? Yeah. It's an argument for having kids when you're younger, right? Like really young.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Then, then you can still deal with this sort of this level of energy. Although I think even if you're if you're young, as, uh, as soon as you become sleep deprived, um, all your energy is out the window.
1: Um, What's happening with you this week? What's been going on apart Uh, from the the child?
0: I actually worked again for just for a day. Um, I'm doing some freelance work and that uh, includes doing some filming for YouTube. And I traveled to Hannover and met someone who is working with Talon. Um, it's, It's this genome editing technique that's different from crispr everybody's talking about crispr but there's other stuff as well tailen is one of those and i talked to him and it was very nice like we filmed a little interview i just finished cutting everything um it's like up for revisions now so if i get the like the okay from everyone it's up next week but it's in german cool. so a little bit less exciting for our listeners i guess but
1: ah guys go learn german Yes. You want to hear what Joram has to say? Learn German. It's totally worth it. It's a beautiful language. It's the language of the greatest <laughs> poets, um, or at least the greatest rappers, maybe. That could like, actually be true, right? There's a lot of German rap out there.
0: Yeah, but I don't know if it's the greatest. I I still think like, the US has pretty decent rappers that are better... And I think even the UK, what? Well, not even even like the UK has some fantastic <laughs> rappers. Um, not nah,
1: even the UK. Let's say that. I mean, let's just remind the UK that it's not an empire anymore and that it's. <laughs> of <you think laughs> no, it I the think I, it. I
0: rather understand in a way that usually British music, like British rap, is not the first thing you think uh, think about when you hear British music. You think like yeah. pop and Beatles, rock music.
1: You think Beatles, yeah. I hear John Lennon was quite a rapper though, actually. <laughs> i mean why not probably
0: <laughs> probably um um yes and for for you did something happen something exciting to happen apart?
1: nothing excited happening oh yes my bank c- cards came that's the joy that my life is right now i'm currently i've been in the in the uk now for almost two months and it's just taken a long time to set up something so getting like official uk bank accounts and stuff like that so this is a bit complicated um I haven't been paid yet by my job that I've been doing for a couple of months just because I haven't had the bank cards. And it's not their fault. It's kind of my fault that I haven't had the bank card set up. But I couldn't get the bank card set up because I needed address confirmation. All of this bullshit that happens when you move countries and it's stressful. And then at the same time, there's a lot of um, security that the banks have these days. So every time I've been trying to pay with my German card and my Australian card, like all this residual stuff that I have and every now and then they just like block my account because I've paid too much with like what are you doing what is this London place that you're talking <laughs> of why are you trying to take your own money out in London um, so this week I got both my German and my Australian um, credit card blocked both of which I've been trying to use to pay my rent and pay my council tax which is really really stressful I mean I'm I'm in a really lucky position that I have the money somewhere to be able to pay my rent while this is all getting sorted but I hate this bureaucracy. I want somebody to do the adulting stuff for me. I would like to just... I don't know. Is there a nice man out there who really enjoys doing taxes and, like, organizing my bank shit for me? Like, I can bake brownies. Like, that is the exchange I'm willing to... It doesn't have to be a man. It can be a woman as well. It doesn't have to be a sexual relationship. We can just, like, have some sort of symbiosis where you do my boring adulting shit for me. And I, like... I don't know what I'm bringing to this relationship. Um.
0: <laughs> fun and joy and um, a much better mood because you don't have to deal with this stuff anymore.
1: Yeah, I complain about things and then you do the things and I complain still some more about new things. That would be the relationship. If, if that sounds like a win for you, like hit me up, guys <laughs> or girls or anyone.
0: <laughs> that All sounds right. fun. <laughs> Maybe turn down your gain a little bit. Uh, okay. Just like a, a notch. Because a notch, when you did down. the sound check, you talked in a quieter voice.
1: Yeah, I suddenly got really excited about bank cards and boring shit like that. No,
0: it's good. No, it's fine. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, adult life has got us caught well. <laughs>
1: adulting, yeah.
0: Adulting I did is teach so much somebody fun. the
1: word adulting this week, so that felt like that itself mm. was my adulting of the week, was that I taught somebody else the word adulting. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I think, like,
1: now I, I just feel like I'm done and I want to go and sleep. Um, and it's very cold here at the moment. It's always, like, heating is very poor in the UK, so... Inside is always cold, so I just want to go under my duvet and sleep. Which is also what I was doing while Joram was chasing his child. I was like, "All right, Yoram's not going to call me. I'm just going to like take a little nap under my duvet." That's the I way to
0: go. I always wonder why in in the UK the heating is so poor because it was also my experience. I
1: it's cold outside, but it's not like freezing. Like, you're not going to mm. die of cold, at least like not if you're inside. Yeah, um, and everything is so expensive, so we're cheap and we turn it off. So
0: yeah, yeah <laughs> a little that's bit a on point. us
1: and our financial standing here in this very very expensive city yeah
0: that's 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 true that's um in in ireland um the place i was at it had a uh, prepaid electricity you had to top up like 10 pounds a time what? electricity by the door there was like a numpad where you like punch in the code that you bought from the from the like little kiosk down the road where you could buy just like phone cards you buy like electricity cards and you punch that in then, you, then it counts down from like 10 pounds and then yeah, if you're in the middle of a shower and you have electrical heating for your water, and the electricity done. runs out, then it's cold water. Um,
1: it's a good way of keeping track of how much you're spending because I never really have any idea of.
0: Yeah, like at, at oh, the same I left time, my TV
1: all night on all night. Now I spent this much yeah, dollars, right?
0: At the same time, I doubt that this is the best value you can get for um, for like an electricity bill. I think they still overcharge you. Same with like phone stuff.
1: Oh, sure. But I mean, we probably should be more aware of how much electricity we're spending, not just for the financial side, but for the kind of greenhouse gas, like carbon consumption side, we should kind of think about, oh, yeah, I did this. Okay. Let's talk about some other science, shall we? Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's the paper of the week.
1: Today's paper of the week is Evolution of Carnivorous Traps from Planar Leaves Through Simple Shifts in Gene Expression. It's from Christop- Christopher Christopher White and Beatrice Gonzalez. Goncha- Gonchalves. Uh,
0: Conch- Gonchalves. And G the, the
1: Cheng. So there's yeah, there's three um first authors. first authors. Which is quite cool. Um it came out in science in twenty nineteen. And I'm saying all the title stuff because Joram knows most of the information about the paper because Joram was the one who chose the paper. So why did you choose this paper,
0: Joram? I chose this paper because it sounded very interesting to talk about um, the development of these traps. So the paper talks about carnivorous traps. Um, So in carnivorous plants, it's something we actually talked about last week, right? The the pictures of carnivorous plants, they Mm -hmm. look very different from most... As, uh, other organs that you have on a plant so maybe you have some flower structures that look similar to a pitcher but usually the leaves the roots the stem none of it really looks like a pitcher so and in
1: the and they are they are leaves they're kind of modified leaves aren't they as far as like classification of organs a lot yeah. of these are like leaf structures that could have been leaves but then chose a different fate
0: and so i found this very intriguing to understand how this works and so i yeah started reading on this paper i actually found it on twitter because one of the first authors beatrice um she uh, posted about it on twitter and i bookmarked it and came back to it um and because the paper it's a it's a report in science um is rather short but very very dense in information mm. i reached out to her and had her explain some of the stuff that in in more words and could fit into this rather short format of a paper um and yeah so
1: there's kind of there's like three bits of the paper and the first bit is kind of a um like old school description of the plant to kind of get you familiar with the different structures that you have on this species and then the second structure is kind of uh, section is kind of about gene expression and how different expression of different genes can contribute to the development of these unique leaf structures, the traps. And then the third is a computer modeling section, which
0: yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, especially the modeling section and especially talking about, so we will talk a lot about like uh, geometry and um, arrangement and growth directions and and orientations. And all of that in words for me as a non-native speaker was at the edge of the things that I could easily understand because then...
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's a native speaker for me also. I mean, there's 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 technical terms, which we're just not familiar with as well. So this is
0: so let's let's try to to get through it um i want to at the beginning i want to really thank uh beatrice um so i wrote about this it actually published today so yesterday on the day of the podcast release um uh, a rather long article uh, with a lot of help from, from Beatrice who gave me like, good explanation and quotes and, and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I really want to thank her for the input. It was really pleasant to have one of the first author, authors explain um, parts of the science there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the beginning of the paper is really just um, a description first of what we're dealing with here. And that's a carnivorous aquatic plant, um, Utricularia gibba. Um, which mm-hmm. is the humped bladder word um, in english uh, yeah
1: and that gibba is the the humped meaning i think the yeah the etymology of this gibba so this is kind of the clue to what's happening with this plant
0: and if you want to like imagine what it looks like to me it sort of looks like dill it has these very thin <laughs> uh thin leaves um that are almost yeah, needle like that's wrong actually it is dill-like. It is dill-like, and then at the edges or in the at the what is the word like at the forks when um, a leaf structure uh, branches off from the main stem, then you have a, uh, you can have a trap there. And the trap. And they just
1: look a little bit like a bubble, or they look like a moon when it's not quite full, like this C-shaped yeah. moon, I would say present moon
0: but big one these are these like tiny cups um they are just a couple of millimeters in size and they trap um invertebrates in it um and then digest them and use them as a nitrogen source and uh, the interesting so this thing this is all happening in the water isn't it yeah it's all happening in the water i don't know how i they must sit in some like streams or something i couldn't find mm-hmm. anything on the like feeding biology of these plants but they must sit in some streams and then the current comes by and um, some of these invertebrates the very tiny invertebrates get stuck in the cups and um, there's actually some microscopy cross sections there and they have this sort of structure where once something gets in um, it's really hard for it to get out again um, just based on on the shape of it because you have sort of these these ridges these inward ridges that that catch and trap prey Inside these cups.
1: Yeah, so it's basically. I mean, it's Utricularia. It's found across the whole of the world, and it just grows in ponds and lakes and kind of dirty bits of water all through the world. So it's quite adaptive. And yeah, I think part of the thing is that the water it can grow in can be very crappy quality water. So that's where the the prey eating kind of comes in, help to get at things like phosphorus and nitrogen that it's not usually getting um, in other ways easily.
0: Yeah, and now as you already said, like these traps, they are specialized leaves from a developmental uh, point of view so that means when um, the leaf is formed the the very first thing that's that's made is a structure primordium um and this is the same for, as far as you know all plants, you have these leaf primordia. Um, mm-hmm. the, these are sort of the stem cells, the basic structures that will then differ- uh, grow and differentiate into a leaf structure. Um, yeah,
1: so you have like this shoot apical meristem, usually so this like small dome structure, and then a the little primordia are kind of like small jelly bean arms that come off it and then gradually develop into these leaf shapes.
0: And in the beginning uh, of these Primordia, you can't tell visually if it will turn out to be a a leaf or a trap. Uh, Just looks
1: like a jelly bean.
0: Yeah, it just looks like a jelly bean and it's only later during the, the growth that um, it will sort of decide. Not, not really decide. It's hard to tell at which point there is like a molecular decision, but a morphological decision um, takes a while until um, it's, it's made. So um, at, the, at the beginning, the growth looks very similar, but then at one point, um, they look different. The leaf structure looks different from the trap structure and um to further understand that and to understand how this is made um they in the paper they did some confocal microscopy so they did these uh, this microscopy where you can um create 3d structures of the tissue that you're looking at in the in the computer and at first they just m- sort of measured like what are they actually looking at mm-hmm. and um they looked at different growth stages um both of leaves and traps uh and then um did some measurements on them, just some sizes to estimate like the dimensions of everything. Um, and then they went into modeling it. So I, I, I'm skipping over here in one one figure. That's a lot of molecular work, um, mm-hmm. which they also did To But they, this is, I find it more understandable in context of what they're trying to model.
1: Okay, so do you want to do the modeling first then?
0: Yeah, I want to do the modeling first because what they did then is that they modeled this dome, this primordium, and then put in just a few parameters to, and uh, then they sort of let it run, let it grow, and checked what kind of structures were made. And to understand that, we have to go through through some of these parameters.
1: So basically, what when you're <coughs> making a model, you're trying to explain something that you see, something it's an event that happens or you know a, a starting point and an end point using kind of the minimal, often using as, as, as few parameters um, uh, rules, what's essentially, what I'm looking for. It's huh? essentially
0: rules. You give, like, you give yeah, the computer two, a set of two rules. Two or three
1: rules, and see if that can make what you want to see in the end. Basically, something like this, right? So, they had these kind of, if we say X, Y, and Z, do we get our end product of ending up here? In this case, with the trap instead of ending up with a leaf.
0: Yeah, and so the first thing that I had to create for these cells to actually be modeled is. Sort of a system to orientate themselves in, and um, the system uh, is defined on the diffusion of morphogens, and a morphogen is a molecule that's made at one point or at one like area in in your structure then it diffuses and it is degraded at another point and it creates a gradient from the source to the sink of this molecule of these morphogens and this in this in the model these are just hypothetical morphogens so these are just yeah. you just say look at the base of our dome there's a molecule made and it diffuses to the tip and at the tip it gets degraded and so we have this gradient from the bottom to the tip and this is our first um, orientation
1: Yeah, just to clarify, a morphogen is kind of a generic term for one of these chemical signals, so it's not like a special class of molecule, it's just kind of this term of saying this is this diffusing concentration gradient forming signaling molecule,
0: basically. And, um, yeah, later in the molecular work, we actually have a look at if these morphogens exist. But first, mm-hmm. let's, um, look at some, some more, um, that they added there because now we have one dimension. We have from the base of the leaf to the tip of the leaf is the base from the dome to the tip of the dome. Um, but then there's also, um, a diffusion that goes, um, from the outside to the inside. That's, a, a um, that's another, um, dimension that you can where you get a different gradient and then you have a sort of uh
1: you mean like from the from the outside to so the kind of core of yeah. this dome shape yeah
0: uh, and then you have uh, perpendicular to this so the cells sort of know when they grow perpendicular to this this is then the third dimension so there's not actually a third morphogen for these uh, for the third dimension it's just knowing that you grow perpendicular to one of these gradients
1: mm-hmm.
0: <clears throat> and uh the Final thing that they put in here as a coordination in this model is the difference between the adaxial and abaxial side, Mm -hmm. which is um, extremely confusing. Took me a while to (laughs) to understand and actually some notes where I write down what it means. So what it means is that the abaxial side with the B, with the soft B sound, that's the top of the leaf. That's the, the area that will become the top of the leaf she shaking her head um, it's a
1: not usually th- not usually maybe in-, in this case it is
0: but no, i think no, normally that th- this follows regular nomenclature so i mix it up already on the first try
1: <laughs> so i always think the a back seal side is the a back of the leaf so it's the bottom of the leaf it's the back of the leaf so that's how i remember it um technically i think it should be the one that's not facing the stem if they're more upright leaves um
0: yeah yeah, you're right. But, Abaxial, so like, yeah, the, the B is the bottom and the adaxial is the... The B is, is for the
1: bottom or for the back. So it's the abax of the... yeah. And okay. the adaxial
0: <laughs> is the top... Because it's And the Dach
1: in German is roof, so you can do this, Joram. Yeah. I feel like this is really helping you.
0: Yeah. So and top and bottom here, <laughs> yeah, as you said, it's like it's the, the top area is the one when the leaf is folded up that's closer to the stem, and the bottom mm. side is the one that's facing away from the stem. That's why it comes from. Axial is the, the axis of the stem, and then it's the one that's facing it and the one that's not facing it. Um, Yeah.
1: And there's actually been a lot of studies in in many different species, like also Arabidopsis, about what factors contribute to the development of the adaxial and abaxial side. Because even in something like Arabidopsis, where it has a very flat kind of planar leaf, these sides have quite different features. So Mm -hmm. one example is that the stomata, the little air holes which let in the carbon dioxide, let the um, oxygen in and out. Um, there's often more of them on the underside of the leaf just because you're less likely to lose a lot of water for transpiration if you put a lot of them on the underside. So there's been studies in the past looking at kind of more simple leaf structures like we have in Arabidopsis. And this is now a study looking at a much more complex, specialized leaf kind of structure here.
0: I think a prime example that you find also then on Wikipedia for it is a a silver birch that has very silvery bottom of the leaf. So abaxial... side is uh, is very silver and the top is very dark green um so you can really if you have these two leaves side by side and one is flipped over they look extremely different um and it just mm. goes to show like how different these two sides can be although you have this very thin structure and you would think like why wh- what is why there?
1: different and this is like often a very important um adaptive thing for plants that in in a very short space of time, they can control how much photosynthesis they do by kind of flipping their leaves in a different direction. So now like the less green side is up or they can control how much water they keep in by, for example, rolling their leaves in a way that all the stomata are closed on the inside. So this is one of the really important things that plants use to behaviorally adjust to changes in environmental stimuli because i can't get up and go like inside the house like weekends so
0: yeah yeah and so um in in a in like for the next part i would just say like bottom and top of the leaves just know that this is not as scientific but i just find it less confusing so now you have this like dome shape this primordium and it doesn't have a top and the bottom yet, so it w- when it when it grows, you don't know which side is what yet. And uh, for the cells to orientate themselves and to sort of know if they will grow into the silver underside of a birch or into the dark green top side of a birch leaf, um, there's another field um, of uh, information there, and it's uh, done by another another set of morphogens. That's uh, one is diffusing from what will be the top side, and one is diffusing from what will be the dot- bottom side towards the other end degraded mm-hmm. at the uh, at the other end um, and the interesting thing about this is that there is a section in the middle where both of these gradients overlap where mm-hmm. both of them fall under a certain threshold um, of concentration at the same time and this is what defines the midplane because this is also an important tissue you have the top you have the bottom and you have the stuff that's in between um, that gives you a, a, a place for orientation but also has often a functional role um, if you Look at the cross section of a leaf, um, and with these two parts or so with these two things that diffusing from one end to the other, um, this gives a uh, th- yeah that defines the structure of the leaf in this this respect here. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And this is also the part where, um, when you look at some of the research behind it, there, has, there have actually been um, a lot of these morphogens been defined, or there's a lot of either like um, proven morphogens or good candidates that uh, for pre- molecules that have these roles. And it's really a complicated network. Beatrice um, explained to me like there was there's um, not only metabolites that diffuse but there's also RNAs like interfering RNAs that diffuse from one end to the other to sort of block the the expression of Mm -hmm. the the morphogen. So it's not only sort of a positive signal but from the other end a negative signal coming as well.
1: Layers on layers of regulation. Yeah, so very... As is always the case. Yeah. Amazing.
0: And all of this is now true for like regular leaves and uh, not only for traps or for for this carnivorous plant. Um, So these things go on in these primordial... And um, that's why these were put in the model. And now the question is, what do you have to change uh, at the model to get a planar leaf or to get a cup-shaped trap? Um, and what they changed now in the model is the, the, the size of these two of the top and bottom morphogen like how much tissue is expressing that signal so sort of how much of the tissue um, wants to become the top and the bottom um, because that has then an influence on where the midplane sits is if mm-hmm. both of them are equal you get a sort of a straight midplane in the middle and then the cell when the cells start to grow they grow in parallel to this midplane and then you get the planar leaf um so you have yeah. I sort of have to imagine you have two equal signals from both ends um and then you get a straight midplane and then the, everything follows the pa- in parallel the, the the midplane for for growth and then you get just like a flat leaf structure
1: yeah i think that that's, that makes sense yeah
0: and so now the stuff where it um what makes it a trap is now that now I have to say the right thing, which one is it, the top or the bottom. I think it is the bottom side that has like the area of that expresses the morphogen is bigger than the area that expresses the morphogen for the bottom yeah. uh, for the top. Uh-huh, yeah. and so you get like sort of this big spot um of this dome, so almost going all ar- around it's like an in in the paper. Um, that we'll link to in the, in the show notes. There, in the modeling, you find like this dome structure and then you have sort of a spot on it. Only the spot is the top morphogen and the rest of it is the bottom morphogen. And this mm. creates, this distorts the midplane. So if you look at it um, from above, the midplane is not a straight line anymore. It's sort of a disc, uh, uh, um, a distorted disc. And now if the cells start to grow in parallel to this disc, um, this distorted disc, they start growing into a cup. And with the more they grow, the more this cup shape gets reinforced and this then sort of turns on itself like, like uh, inwards. Like I'm doing hand motions now that nobody can <laughs> see really.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a bit hard to explain. Um, we have, Joram made some really beautiful drawings for the blog post. If you want to go check that <coughs> out, you can also obviously look at the original paper. Um, for me... It's it's easiest to imagine it in a 2D plane where mm-hmm. you kind of have somebody standing up straight as a tiny little primordia, and then growing taller, but in an uneven way, so that their their back becomes longer and longer, and their front part kind of shrivels up, and it kind of ends up turned um, yeah. like on its front. But this is also a 2D representation, so you should look at the paper or look at arm's pictures to kind of see it in a 3D way and how that happens because it's yeah. it's not coming from this straight plane; it's coming from this more dome-like structure in the end.
0: Yeah, but the the key the key idea here is. You have these two morphogens that um, that define the growth area, and in a trap, they are just uh, not equally distributed. One of them is much mm-hmm. bigger than the other, while in a planar leaf, you usually have them uh, very equally distributed, um, which then growth uh, gives you this growth in length um, and and wide, uh, and so. This is the model, and they could find in a molecular work they could find of these some of these morphogens where they knock them out, and they could then destroy the cup, uh, the, the the development of the cup, um, and
1: uh yeah. So this is using previous research which has been done in mostly model plants like Arabidopsis, and using those gene equivalents in the Utricularia Utricularia species, and then just doing kind of I mean simple. I'm going to put that in little inverted commas. I'm not sure how easy it is to even manipulate this plant, but changing the plant and, and seeing what happens when they yeah. mess with these genes. And that's always a nice kind of cause and effect way of showing that the genes you're looking at are in fact involved in the process. So they've got also some images of that in the paper if you want to check that out.
0: Yeah, and because we're talking already quite a bit now mm-hmm. on the paper, I want just to briefly mention one of the the um, last key findings um, in the paper, which is the chicken and egg problem in leaf development, which is, mm-hmm. is it the um, uneven distribution uh, distribution of cell division so is r1 is one end dividing faster than the other end um, that gives you this distorted uh, growth and it gives you this cup shape or is it something else and uh, tied to that is also um is the growth direction defined by the the way that cells divide or is uh, do the cells divide following the direction of growth that's given to them um and for this, um, there's also in the, in the post that I, I drew a very simple image that's based on one of the experiments that they did, um, where they modeled then instead of doing the whole 3D modeling, what they did for their computer model, they just looked at the 2D model um, and they gave, um, they first of all, they saw that the, for the model to work, the growth rates were identical. So the top and the bottom of the leaf grew at the same speed. Mm-hmm. That, so that's the first thing. So it's not just that the bottom side is just growing that much quicker. And that's why you get this, this um, changed into a cup shape. Um, and then um, for the other thing, they just modeled on a 2D space and, um, the cells, how they would elongate in a certain direction. So they give them a growth direction and then they give them a restriction that they should only divide across the narrowest gap that they can form. So they can't just, if you have sort of a long tube of a cell, they can't go from the far end to the other end and uh, divide in this direction. They can only divide at the shortest end, which is also something um, that I think is is taken from um, observable biology. So you see that the the cells usually try to divide across the narrow, like the Mm narrowest distance. And just with uh, this this input that they have to... uh, pick the shortest length for the division um, and when they grow this gives you then a coordinated growth plane so they all the uh, div- division plane so they all divide in the same orientation just because you tell them grow upwards and then divide at the shortest point that makes that they all divide in the same orientation and not like st- uh, statistically like randomized in like some would then grow like divide uh, across long side and then maybe like be split yeah in a different uh, in a different plane um, and that answers the question that for for leaf development is like is it direction defining division or division defining direction um, and it's direction that defines the uh, the plane of division which brings which de- define me <laughs> <laughs> uh to uh, find my title of let's grow to to joy division planes um which happened when it was like which past is the midnight title of the blog post. <laughs> yeah the title ah. of the blog post was like the last thing i wrote there like <laughs> past midnight so forgive me if it's a terrible title
1: Okay, and the title of the paper is Evolution of Carnivorous Traps from Plenar Leaves Through Simple Shifts in Gene Expression. So you can check that out. We forgot to mention at the top that it's from people at the John Innes Center, mm-hmm. but also from the Chinese Academy of Sciences um, and yeah, some uh, universities also in China mostly. Um, And also one thing to put is that if you're interested in this utricularia or utricularia, I'm not really sure how to say it properly, John Innes has put some movies, I've seen at least one cool movie on YouTube called The Secret of How Utricularia Gibber Makes Its Animal Sucking Traps. And this is using kind of 3D... um, Constructions of the the trap itself, if you want to have a look at that, and it seems to be based on work done by um, some overlap of the same authors that are on this study. So yeah, we'll put the link to that in the show notes as well.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, check out our post. Um, I'm I'm very happy uh, about it. Although I think it's a complicated thing to talk about um, if you don't have the images to go with it. And even for me, it took me forever to understand like what is growing in which direction and what does it mean. Um, but in the end, the model that they built is fairly simple and, uh, compared to the complexity of the structures that are made.
1: I think that's the reality of a lot of things. A lot of complex work and the idea is to simplify it down. Yeah. So this is quite an amazing job.
0: Yeah. Um, so with that, we can move on. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, okay. Dying. How are you still dying? Constantly Dying.
1: favorite plant yeah it's you it's me
0: um because i haven't talked enough today um so dear listener (laughs) please enjoy the beautiful sound of my voice for some more time um my favorite plant is this um this week is uh, influenced by uh, it was i don't remember when it was but we talked about this um this lily that was growing on these lakes no not a lily um this water Hyothanth, water, water hyacinth ah, uh-huh. that okay. was overgrowing all these uh, bodies of water, this like extremely fast growing plant and mm-hmm. um, when we researched this and wrote about this I think we did a blog post on it and I think it might have even made it to the podcast as well but anyway, so I tried to figure out why is this plant growing so quickly and I couldn't really find a good reason because like it could be interesting for other stuff as well to have a plant that grows very quickly um, but what I found then was the slowest growing plant um okay. and this is what i want to talk about today it's puya raimondii uh it's also called queen of the andes titanka mm-hmm. or puya de Raimondi. um it's a bromeliad which is a monocot flowering plant um uh related to pineapples or well, pineapples are also monocot flowering plants i don't know if this guy is that related to a pineapple but they share the same property of being a monocot flowering plant
1: so bromeliads are quite common as ornamental plants actually um They're these guys which have these kind of uh, orange or red or yellow kind of tufty bits. And often you see them also with um, little water spaces in the flower in botanical gardens. So probably a lot of our listeners are already familiar with bromeliads in that context. Yeah,
0: and... um, uh in my notes I wrote, I wrote here because it looks like a cock and balls on the wikipedia page um, does it? it does on the wikipedia page you have like this very long shaft growing up up to 50 meters high and then you have like two bushy balls just right at the base so
1: i'm seeing it but it's very off center yarm i feel like okay. <laughs> yeah
0: it's, See you, doctor. it's not what it lo- should look like but, um yeah it's the slowest growing plant on earth its reproductive cycle lasts about 80 years um of course like every every cool plant that had to deal with humans it is threatened um
1: mm-hmm. it's native in fairness just like it's very very big in fairness to it it's not like a small like i'm imagining a bromeliad when you say that i think of like a small something i can hold in my hands it's huge yeah, 50
0: meters uh, in in height um and yeah it was named by an italian scientist antonio raimondi that's Hence the name Puya Raimondi, uh, who immigrated uh, to Peru and he made like very expensive botanical expeditions, and that's also why he um, encountered this species. Um, and first, he he didn't actually call it uh, after himself, which I find for like at, at the time I, this was in the nineteenth century. I would have expected more people like just giving everything their own name. Um, so it was only named after him later in nineteen twenty eight. Uh, by a if German botanist. I found the
1: plant out. W- oh, great! If I found the plant, I would definitely name it after myself.
0: Yeah, yeah. But in this case, they remained renamed it because there is also um, the, the previous name Puya gigantea that, he, that the Italian uh, researcher picked um, was already in use for a Chilean species.
1: Apparently, Puya means pinprick in Spanish. At least that's what Google Translate translator. <laughs> okay because <laughs> uh, it looks spiky maybe yeah maybe i mean it looks very spiky yeah yeah it, it comes from a mapuche indian word so this is the um, indigenous people of the like chilean south american region meaning point mm-hmm. yeah
0: um yeah and the, the usually these these plants they only flower when they're 80 to 100 years old which is oh. cl- compare compared to like Pretty much all other plants that I can think of um, very, very <laughs> late, even trees. At least the
1: ones you work on in the lab.
0: Yeah. I <laughs> imagine having to do Not research a good on this model one. organism. So, like my, my grandchildren's children, they will be able to do the next generation of these guys. Mm.
1: Um, I'm hearing that long term studies are very in, though.
0: Yeah. Uh, so um, there's some in some botanical gardens they flower earlier so in the wild they take forever in some botanical gardens they um I think it it's linked from the Botanical Garden in Berkeley in in the US. They had some plants flower after 28 years of growth. Okay. Um and
1: I can see that being a really good um PhD student project. So like your aim is to optimize the flowering of this plant. The the, the minimum is 28 years. Like let's try for a personal best. If you can get it under 3 years you get your PhD otherwise good luck. <laughs> yeah. Like very risky phd projects Uh, that should be one of the categories of our podcast very risky phd projects and every time one of us has to suggest the most ridiculous phd project they can come up with that's mine
0: (laughs) Um, let me just take a note there and at the same time tell you (laughs) that like they in berkeley they have a theory why this plant um, flowered after only 28 years and they believe it had been sun chalked because there was a neighboring tree that was throwing shade on it and it had uh, this tree was cut down and so suddenly there was a, a much more light available to this plant and the plant was immediately stressed out it was like oh oh my god oh my god oh my god what's happening what's happening what's happening let's go to the next generation although i know usually it should it should take 60 more years to do this but let's do mm. it now let's rather be safe um
1: that's a pretty common you know stress your plants if you want them to flower they might die after they flower but you you could get some flowers quite yeah. rapidly
0: yeah. Um, so yeah. So that's my plant, uh, Queen of the Andes, Puya raimondii, uh, the slowest growing plant in the world.
1: Cool. The diversity in the
0: Science. Uh, this is you.
1: Yeah. So today my non-Y male is actually a male, um, but not a Y male. Um, he is an African American agricultural scientist and inventor. His name is George Washington Carver. And he's also known, I think, as the Peanut Man. (laughs) Um, Although Time Magazine in the 1940s called him also the Black Leonardo, which I'm assuming is a reference to Leonardo da Vinci and not Leonardo DiCaprio. I thought Leonardo from Um, the Turtles. Ah, from the Turtles. Famous for the Turtles. (laughs) Um, So this is George Washington Carver. So just he was born in possibly 1864 but we're not really certain because he was born into slavery in the US and as was quite common in the time his exact date of birth isn't really known um he was had a pretty rough early life in that a week after he was born he was kidnapped um also his sister and his mother were stolen from the Carver farm which is the farm of the family who basically owned his family um his parents were in both um a couple and they were both enslaved. Um but luckily in his case he was located by the the farm owner Moses Carver and returned back to the farm. And then Moses Carver and his wife, I think Suzanne, kind of decided to keep and help raise um George and his brother after slavery was ending. So this is kind of in the now in the transition period. The Civil War ended in 1865, so probably a year after he was born. So slavery became illegal. It it ended as such. Um, You can discuss how much it ended at another time. Um, But Moses and Susan, (coughs) so the Carvers themselves, kept these two boys and actually helped to educate them, which was quite uncommon at the time. Um, So Susan Carver taught um, George Washington Carver how to read and write because he was black and he wasn't allowed to go to school. The local schools just wouldn't take him. Um, he actually even took up the last name of the family who um, had originally owned him as a baby, so he became George Carver. Previously, he was known as Carver's George, the George that belonged to the Carvers, which, again, owning other humans' beings, very disgusting practice. Um, yeah, but so he basically, he became educated quite fast. He was he was obviously very smart, but he was also quite artistic, which brings us back, um, we'll come back to that a little bit later in his interests. Um, but he basically had to be homeschooled and had to do things going around the tradition just because of his race. So he did really well. He excelled, was great at science, was great at drawing and painting, as I said. Um, and somebody said, hey, you, you like to both science and drawing. Botany is really the profession for you. You can go out and look at all these plants and take um, make pictures of them. And when he... He finished his degree. He got accepted into a university. I can't... I, he got accepted to Highland College. Um, but then he rocked up and then they realized what his race was and they turned him away. Hmm. So he had to, um, yeah, do sort of, again, homestay classes and continue on in that way. But then he got accepted as a bachelor in um, Iowa State University. He was actually the first black student at Iowa State and he did his um, Bachelor of Science there and carried on with an interest in plants, but also now plant pathology. Um, so he began this this career as a botanist and became very quickly known as being quite brilliant at what he did. Um, so, yeah, there's a bit more about what his his work was focused on. He was really interested in the idea of crop rotation and in particular using peanuts as a way to mediate the soil particularly that which had been used um, for growing cotton for many many years and basically by growing the same crop in a very intensive way for a long time the soils had been degraded so he had this idea of putting this um, peanut, this legume plant which could help with nitrogen fixation and um, bring back the quality of the, the soil in that way um
0: if you wondered where I just went, I had to let in a cat um, because I was scratching at the door.
1: <laughs> okay, so apart from his interest in peanuts, which got him the name as the peanut man, he was also super interested in education. So obviously he was interested in, in trying to make education a bit more accessible to people, possibly because of his own upbringing. So he developed a Jessup wagon, or it was called a Jessup wagon, which was a mobile classroom, which he could then bring out to farmers who didn't have access to normal education. Um... He got some pretty important honours later in his life, so he was made a member of the British Royal Society of Arts. He also was um, a nutritional advisor to Mahatma Gandhi, and he was the first African-American to have a national monument um, erected in his name. So, yeah, you can go and look into him. He also, as I said, he's called the Peanut Man because he was... So into making all these new alternative uses for peanuts, he was really trying to promote peanut as a new crop that could be used, but not only as an edible crop, but also for making sort of bioplastic things and a whole lot of, um, yeah, many, many inventions. And a lot of people think that maybe he also invented peanut butter, but that's just simply not the case. Mm -hmm. But he did do many, many amazing things in his life. So go and check out his Wikipedia. Again, we can link it. Um, His name is George washington carver and just to add something there is also some discussion out there about his sexuality about whether he was a bisexual man but i i don't know if this um evidence is is high enough but this is another um discussion about um different times and yeah oppression that has happened so it's it's possible yeah
0: this time it's very hard to tell uh, like from in, in hindsight to tell in uh based on the sources because they like for a long time um yeah it would not be mentioned in the sources because especially when they were benevolent sources because they for them it was a flaw when any of this would come up so it was not talked about that's like in, in often in, in historical documents you find like um people living together with their friend um and mm. it's just like all these euphemisms about uh, like deviant sexuality from the heterosexual norm, um, so yeah, I...
1: note that your is using that in a
0: no, is it deviant? Isn't like like yeah, not not being at the time the the current sexual norm that was sort of made by the yeah, system. Yeah, it, it
1: deviated from the norm, yeah. but then the word "deviant" in English has these negative ah, connota- yeah, no, connotations. No, no, I didn't like, mean yeah, that. Yeah, no, yeah. no, okay. I, I meant yeah. that in the in the, in the
0: sense <laughs> that it's yeah. That.
1: It deviated from what was seen as acceptable at the time. Yeah. So this is like, I was actually Googling different things and one of them said, oh, this was like one of the, the most. So he's he's really one of the most well-known um, African-American scientists that there is. Um, and then other people say, hey, he's also a well-known bisexual scientist and this should be talked about. But whether that's like the evidence for that, that I could find in my very quick um, Googling wasn't so convincing but in any case he's an amazing scientist and go and eat some peanuts unless you have an allergy don't eat the peanuts then i actually have something Move there.
0: It. um so yeah my the next section is the bias section um the section without jingle um because every week i don't have the time so my se- it's this week it's me i'm talking about the sunk cost
1: bye bye bias, bias goodbye okay
0: right. uh, we, that will no. be used now we in eternity we weren't allowed to do that. um <laughs> my bias is the sunk cost fallacy um which is the idea that when you if you spend resources on something in the past it will influence mm-hmm. your decisions in the future on the thing and you're more uh more likely to invest more in the thing um that you have invested in already mm-hmm. even though if at the point so the idea is you are at the point in time you're looking back you say like i spent already twenty thousand dollars on this house moving houses would cost ten thousand dollars um further improving getting your house actually usable costs 15,000. So the smart mm-hmm. decision would be to say like let's like cut our costs and move away because then in total we spend less and have a different house but um you are more likely to say i spent already 20,000 on it so i'm rather spending another mm. 15 to make it livable um even though um you don't get the money back that you spent already so you, it, no matter what decision you take um the the cost the, the resources you invested already don't have an influence on um yeah don't you don't get the money back if you st- stick with your strategy um
1: and this is a commentary on science uh failed scientific projects where you start researching something you spend two years of your life doing it and then you realize hmm, this is actually a dead end nothing yeah. is interesting is happening here but you're like you know what i can keep on milking this i can keep on <laughs> yeah <laughs> trying uh, to find some answer yeah,
0: something that um inspiration is the wrong word in this context uh, but to help me put things into perspective for my phd work is don't stick to a mistake <laughs> because you spent a long time making it i saw that written somewhere mm. and um yeah it, i think in science <laughs> <Hashtags are inspiring. laughs> in science you encounter this moment uh more often than not that you look back on a lot of time invested in a in a research project and it just doesn't go anywhere and it's cheaper on a resource perspective to just change the topic but you are more likely to stick with it this is also actually called the concorde fallacy because um this is exactly what happened there so for the british very soon after the launch of the concorde project um so this uh, hypersonic uh, or supersonic um jet connecting um what was it like london and new york and paris and new york Mm -hmm. Uh, i don't know how the british got in there because i only know it as as the airline going from paris to new york but i guess it must have started from london as well um
1: i feel it's definitely in london as well because i've seen it in the movie the parent trap
0: okay yeah if it's in this movie then it must be true
1: um, I mean the modern remake, obviously not the original Hayley Mills one. <laughs>
0: but very soon after they developed uh, the whole aircraft and they started using it, they realized it's just not economically viable. But because uh, the British government um, decided that they had spent already so much on it, it would be a massive PR disaster to cut cut costs now and say like, look, it's not, it's just not worthwhile. And so they continued to run it. Um, and in a non-economic way because they look back at the past and said we spent so much on it, we can't change now, mm. although the smarter decision would have been to scrap it and not do it so yeah, that's the sunk cost fallacy um, if you are unhappy with a PhD project drop it, do something else, become a <laughs> gardener
1: <laughs> especially if you're this only a couple of months in I keep on hearing and like, oh fun. but you're only a few months in just try it for a few more months, I was like no, but if you hate it in a few months, now is the time to change. Yeah.
0: You will not hate it less. I met somebody
1: mm-hmm. I met somebody last weekend who had worked on a PhD for two years and then had switched and was like now completing their PhD in one year and I was very, very impressed by the kind of bravery that took to make that move because I think it's always yeah, it's a tricky thing to do, honestly.
0: Yeah, yeah. and I think yeah, often it can be better for your mental health and your overall well being. To just decide to change careers, projects, PhD labs, whatever, but to have some change there and not stick to something that was just... It could be very hard to get into a job. And expensive. It could, be, it could have been very hard into a job, and then you realize your boss is a terrible person. You don't have to stick to that <laughs> job just because the application process was so hard. Like, mm. you can change. Um, but yeah, let's talk about something fun now. <laughs> Do we have some fun stuff? Uh...
1: I have something kind of terrifying and fun. So, last week we talked about the fires that are happening in Australia. Just as a note, those are still ongoing and will probably be for many months. But um, after the fires, we then had massive hailstorms that hit the eastern coast. Yeah, I saw the pictures. So, big, like larger than golf ball sized um, uh, hail, big bits of ice um, and you know, we're kind of discussing what the hell is happening next. You know, fire and then ice and then what locusts or some sort of thing. Yeah. And as if on cue, I started to see all these news articles about how the current weather that they're having. Oh, there's also dust storms over in the. <laughs> the current weather they're having now is this more humid weather, and this is the perfect breeding weather. For a certain kind of spider known as a funnel web spider, and the funnel web spider is pretty much one of the most deadly spiders in the world. So it's one of the few (laughs) spiders that can kill a grown adult um, by biting it. So that was just kind of fun, but also kind of terrifying. Yeah,
0: extremely terrifying for from my uh, arachnophobe point of view. (laughs) Yeah, at least um they're
1: called funnel webs because yeah, they build these little like kind of traps. So yeah, yeah
0: that are probably also influenced by morphogens no probably not <laughs> different kind of trap no, okay. but yeah i've actually i also saw like uh, some headlines about this and i was too terrified to continue reading about like how these like, very dangerous spiders <laughs> are now on the rise um yeah and i also saw images of the car parks uh destroyed by the hail um like mm. f- a whole car park every single car c- completely destroyed all the windows broken um, massive dents in the in the structure. Yeah, it's 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 terrifying. I'm quite happy for me personally, although I, it sounds terrible to say that. But
1: well, this actually happened in um, <clears throat> Perth, in the town that I grew up with, in about um, maybe nine or ten years ago. Now there was a huge hailstorm. And it was really devastating for the PhD students and the researchers because it just ripped through all the greenhouses and basically experiments that had been going on for years and years and years were completely destroyed. Of course, there was also the financial costs to people's houses, to people's properties. Cars were all dented. Like we had a whole lot of golf ball cars driving the street in the next years where they all have these kind of dimples on them because it's not worth, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's completely over the entire body of the car. It's not financially worth fixing that car. Um, but it can't be written off by the insurance company. So yeah, Yeah. quite dramatic.
0: Yeah. Um, So I have something that's been also on the news now. You might have seen it already. It's about these xenobots. These are these artificially combined cells of, uh, of skin cells and heart cells. I think frog skin and frog heart cells in cell culture. So not actually like taken from frogs um, like living frogs like cultured in cell culture and then combined and interesting thing about this is that these are living robots so these are living cells that have been put together i don't know how i don't understand enough of the the science behind it to know how they managed to manipulate them to, that they grow in a specific shape but they have they made uh, several different ones that then because you have the, the skin cells give you structure and the heart cells give you impulses and that allows you to move for example because the heart cells they have this like contraction going on while the skin cells they are more rigid and give structure to the whole thing and with that they made like different types of xenobots that can, can carry drugs or collect small molecules and the crazy thing about them is that they can repair themselves so if they get damaged they just regrow that part because they're living and
1: that's not what we want isn't it? that's always what we learn with the robots is don't let them repair themselves like you can let them do everything you can let them murder if you want but like once they break don't let them know how to fix themselves
0: (laughs) I mean,
1: Otherwise, we can't destroy them.
0: Very good point. Very good point. Um,
1: I mean, if ever there was like, first we have spider swarms and hail and, and fire, and now we've got like microscopic animal robots which can microscopic animal robots which can repair themselves. This is definitely the end times. The end times.
0: if you frame it this way, yes, it's quite terrifying. Um, So we linked to the study uh, published in PNAS. Of course, it's like early work. So don't expect like a hospital that will inject you, these nanobots that will carry a drug to a place where it's needed. Um, But it's pretty cool. And they say like the advantage of them, um, apart from like the self repair is also that you, they don't leave any residues. So if you would use them in a medical context and you would inject them and they would like go to a place, deliver the cargo, you don't have to take them out again. If you have any sort of mechanical bioplastic or whatever structure, they usually don't they degrade in the body. They again. Yet they have to...
1: Or they stay there, they set up shop, they take over your body, they start controlling you from the brain inside out. Yeah, and these things, yeah.
0: apparently, like if they don't out-repair themselves, they um, can be destroyed completely, taken up by the body, and then they're nothing. It's not, not there anymore. You don't trust that. <laughs> That's what they say now. I don't <laughs> trust them. That's what they say now. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, I have something cool from a magazine called Scientometrics, which I'd never heard of before. Um, I have a Google alert for evolution. And this is called Mapping the Dynamics of Research Networks in Ecology and Evolution Using Co-Citation Analysis. It's by Rial et al. And it just came out a couple of days ago in this Scientometrics. And it's basically just looking at... um the different citation networks that you see between different fields within um ecology and evolution as as a larger field so um what ideas used to be and it's looking from the period of 1975 to 2014 and looking at what ideas used to be dominant in this field um and how those ideas were attached to other ideas to make up kind of subfields and how that's changed um over time so they say like there's been kind of three main bodies of literature the population community ecology the evolutionary ecology and um population or quantitative genetics but then there's like different emergence and disappearance and mutation of fields which you can kind of track by looking at this co-citation record so it's kind of seeing the literature as this living like network of organisms which are interacting and then you can see different trends so one example of course is that um climate change um and like these kind of Disaster uh, research papers are coming up more often, and and getting their own sort of sub networks or like these hmm. like neural hubs or something like that. So hmm. I don't know, it's quite cool. They have um, an image just showing these networks, and I, I just thought that was a really interesting idea. I had never really thought of that before.
0: Yeah, cool. We'll put a link down in the description for that. Um, so my
1: I don't know if it's open, but they have a preprint that is open, so you can check out the preprint.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just I'm just looking at it. Um, it wants me to buy the article um but that's a preprint okay then i'll try to find a preprint and link that instead um yeah my next thing is something like a palette cleanser something very happy Um, it's a cute little comic on arabidopsis research it's called arabis research notebook um i found this through the Plante community Uh, i think it's from a taiwanese uh, artist um and she drew this little comic um it's from jin liao um Although I don't know now, I I sh- I, I will say they now because I can't. They have a, a snorkeling mask on and the full like diving gear, so I have no idea. Just hmm. or even I can't even extrapolate from the phenotype about <laughs> the Genesis. which is anyway not a, exactly like the more i think about gender the, expressions i'm find. just saying they they built uh drew this uh, nice comic and they drew it in english and taiwanese um and just like a cute little comic um about why we use arabidopsis what um, they are actually uh, in this particular case what they're researching um and from all the science comics that i've seen in the past um i really like this style and it's one of the prettier ones um science comics have a tendency to be done by scientists who are great at science not so great at comics but this one is great at both um so we'll link that it's um it's very yeah it's just very cute it has this like anime style and um i really enjoyed it
1: um, I have a couple of small things. So how, how are you going with your fact? I have, have one more fact and I don't have
0: a cat fact. Do you have a cat fact?
1: Okay. I have like one comment, which is that I took a BuzzFeed quiz to find out which house plant I was yeah. and I got a rubber leaf, a rubber tree. So I was really disappointed in that. So you suck BuzzFeed. I'm unsubscribing <laughs> and I hate you. <laughs> ficus oh, is a fine, but if I'm a ficus, I'm clearly a ficus lirata. Just obviously. Fair enough. Not a common... R- anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um. I have a cat fact.
0: Okay. But j- j- we're not ending on it now. Do you have something else?
1: Uh, I have another cool paper that people should probably read. Okay. But I haven't read it yet. So uh, it looks really cool. Correlative three-dimensional super resolution and block face electron microscopy of whole vitreously frozen cells by Hoffman and Alec came out in Science... Um, on the seventeenth, so I guess at the start of this week, the end of last week. Basically, it's um, a new way to do better imaging where you can look at things really, really close, but also in three D, which is kind of amazing. So they can look at the protein structures, um, kind of frozen in space and time, at um, at the protein level, so not like in these larger scales. Um, and I guess this is going to be pretty big. So they have a paper out in Science, and they said that. Let me just see what the, the statement is. I think um, dun, 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 dun. there was something about how nearly every system we studied revealed unexpected results. So they were looking at the different parts of the cell and they were just like mm. amazed by everything they saw because there was all new stuff that hadn't been properly described um, before. So new method or, or improvement of this kind of microscopy slash yeah double microscopy method. So go check that one out in science.
0: Yeah, I try to find it on, on the website now for the link. Um
1: I've got asked. Yeah, yeah, I'll find it. it. Um, link in show notes, <coughs> link up, swipe up, whatever the
0: thing is. <laughs> My last thing for today is um an article by Miriam Glasmer. Um she's a researcher. I just I'm looking now for there. Um she's an oceanograph, os, oceanographer and teacher. And she wrote an article about six reasons for researchers um, to use Twitter. And I found this quite interesting. Um, Her opening premise is uh, why but I don't have anything interesting to say I'm just teaching a blog course right now is not a g- good excuse for not tweeting and she got through six different reasons why you might uh, have something to say and uh, it might have something worthwhile to add to the overall conversation on Twitter um, I'm just going to go uh, like mention a few of them like tweeting to get advice or answers from others um, which is something that I've done also in the past which is really helpful if you know the right ha- hashtags to ask ask around you can, you can get very Very quick, very good answers to different questions. Mm -hmm. Um, You can um, get input or improve teaching or save prep time uh, through Twitter, but also establish yourself as an authority on your field and spread interesting information about the things that you are very interested in. Um, So if you are sort of interested in Twitter, but never always thought, "Eh, I have nothing to contribute there. This is a cool article to get you inspired, to get some ideas why it would be useful. And to me, as, as a science communicator, I'm, I'm a lot on Twitter, and it really helps when I find these people who not just like rant and are angry about stuff, but they share their enthusiasm for their own research field. They share they share um, new results or they ask interesting questions. And then I find in the, in the replies to these questions, I find again, very interesting information. So tweeting according to these like six points um, that Miriam put in her article there, um, just makes Twitter better. And I would...
1: Yeah, I haven't seen the list, but I was thinking like, I hope at least one of those points is just tweet if you're not a bigot. Like, if you're not going to go on there and say something racist or homophobic or sexist, like, if nothing else, <laughs> go there and be positive because Twitter can be a hellhole sometimes. Yeah. So <clears throat> just having an informed and non-negative opinion is, it does actually mean a lot these days. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So also that will be in the show notes. And now it's time for the cat fact. Should I play the cat jingle? We do it not that very, very often.
1: Oh, I didn't know we had a cat jingle. <coughs> It's not really a jingle, is it? Cat fact. <laughs> um, it's not really a cat fact, actually. I lied. I just wanted to hear the jingle. No, I didn't know we had a jingle. Um, so I was listening to another podcast that Yoram and I both love, which is called Baby Geniuses. They released a new episode, I think only every two weeks, which is just so, so sad. Um, We discussed this before. But they introduced this idea of terms of venery, which is the the name for collective nouns of of different groups Mm -hmm. of animals and actually when I was home in Australia my parents were saying something pretentious about how they bet that a lot of people don't know the terms of venery I was like yeah of course they don't like I don't know any of the terms of venery except a murder of crows because crows are terrifying and I know they're going to murder me that's how I'm going to die but like nobody knows collective terms for animals because they're stupid and in this podcast they were actually talking about how the terms of venery which is how you say these collective terms um they 're deliberately stupid they 're deliberately completely arbitrary and made up because it 's supposed to be some posh bullshit which where you should study the posh bullshit to kind of get into the exclusive club of people who knows that the correct term for a like cluster of fish is not a cluster it 's a school of fish, and therefore you are now one of us an elite so it 's this kind of slang jargony thing where the whole point of the the words is to be exclusive, which is delightful um, but then I was looking up collective uh, nouns and the different ones that they have and there's a really nice thing from Wondermark so David Malky is the creator of a cartoon called Wondermark which I think is one of the West best web comics that is out there in the world and he has a um, <coughs> supernatural collective noun so he has like I don't know what is it a prominence of bugbears or a prize of Nessie's a quiver of uh, a cackle of mad scientists and um, a caper of mutants, a ruin of kobolds, like all of these different classes classes of um, organisms, a drudge of skeletons, a craving of golems, a depravity of revenants, a prominence of dampiers. I don't even know what these are. It just It's quite delightful. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and then the cat fact is only that I was looking up the different one for cats and apparently there's many uh-huh. for cats. So if it's feral cats, you can have a destruction of feral cats, which I think is very apt, especially in the context of like, them being in Australia and ruining wild wildlife. But you can also have a, cloud of a cats, clouder of cats. A Which sounds kind of silly. A clouder? Uh-huh. I don't even like what is a clouder? A glaring of cats, which is very cute. <laughs> and a pounce of cats. A pounce. Cats. So I imagine like it's like <laughs> a pounce. Like an active group of cats or an inactive group of cats. So Okay. Yeah. But we also have things like a gulp of cormorants or a sledge of cranes or yeah, I don't know, uh a horde of gnats. There's there's many, many different words. And hey, guys, if you don't learn the collective nouns in English, don't worry, neither do we. <laughs> just call them a bunch. It's <laughs> fine.
0: Yeah, it's just by some pretentious people to make you do the work to show that you are invested enough in the art of hunting to know all the stupid terminology.
1: And I think a lot of them are made up and used in like one or two instances and then people are like oh this is the official term and it's like well no I mean a wisdom of wombats <laughs> has said nobody ever <laughs> yeah. I just
0: and I also imagine like people uh, yeah. uh, that know the words and somebody says there's a bunch of wombats and uh, a what of wombats <laughs> well, I'm I, sorry <laughs> is there like one wombat I don't know, understand what's, what's going on here <laughs> um, yeah
1: I do know that when I was um, I was learning Japanese when I was a kid and there, they have different ways of counting. Mm-hmm. So the numbers are kind of the same, but you modify the 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 word after the number depending on the kind of object. So there's like uh, a round but cylindrical object. So like um, a pencil or a chopstick would have this one way of counting. And then if it's more like a like it's 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 different categories of mm-hmm. objects have different counting methods. And that was always insanely tricky and difficult. <laughs> Sorry. Let's just simplify language, guys. I, I wanted guys. to try
0: to, to learn to count in Japanese, and then like I could, I, I saw the like the basic way of counting. But we have a Japanese friend, and then she explained me, and then um, like pointing at different things in the kitchen and saying different words <laughs> for how to count those. And she's like, "Ah, oh, this yeah. is hard. Can't it be easy? I I just want to learn mm. ten words, and not ten times. I don't know five or ten, whatever. How many categories they have?" Oh um, my yeah, languages are hard.
1: <laughs> languages are hard. I just started learning Spanish as well. That's my other news. I decided that, as well as changing country, changing jobs, changing career, and changing my life, I would also <laughs> change the language I was learning to speak. <laughs> I mean, I previously learned German many, many years ago and then stopped learning and gave up on German. But now I thought Spanish is the way, right way to go because it's unlike German. It's a world language, yeah. Yeah,
0: it's uh, mm. it's true, but um, I don't.
1: But then my Italian friend was talking to me on messaging in Italianized Spanish and just basically mocking the fact that I couldn't understand anything because so far I can say hola, <laughs> hola.
0: <laughs> I try,
1: I, I, Even then I say it with
0: a... <laughs> I use this, this app to learn Spanish. Um, Duolingo? Yeah, and actually
1: yeah you and I were doing that at one stage this was like years ago and I
0: actually stuck with it for quite a while usually after a week I get bored with this but there I think it was at least two months or something where I kind of regularly would go through these uh, lectures uh, lectures or uh, sections and yeah there were just uh, all the examples were so extremely stupid that I at one point uh, this put me off of learning anything more because yeah uh, I was always say uh, like el gato come queso because that was like literally mm. coming up a dozen dozen of times
1: <laughs> la es mia
0: la Ceboya es mia yeah, es mia. yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> and the other thing was yeah I don't even know how to say it and the other thing was that a lot of the examples have this kind of what is under your shirt or show me the like underside of your skirt mm. or <laughs> and I was telling my boss about this how like when I did Duolingo it was always a bit creepy and she's learning Gaelic at the moment and she was saying yeah like one of my friends just got like Maria has like likes to pick up underwear or something like like is always taking the underwear some like really weird statement where it's just like why (laughs) Why? I don't know (laughs) ah Maria stop with the underwear (laughs) stealing
0: okay with that I think we're through today um Mm.
1: You can follow us on the social medias. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Plants and Pipettes. On Twitter,
0: we're at Plants Pipettes.
1: We also have a blog where we write twice weekly. It's www.plantsandpipettes.com.
0: Um, you can rate us on iTunes. Um, you should rate you should us should on rate iTunes. Us, give us five give us stars. five stars or this podcast will end. Uh, um, a very empty thread that we've done a, col- a couple of times now and it never came true. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> we should put our threat in the
1: lock safe. You know this thing where, like, oh, what is it? I think from from No Such Thing as a Fish, the the Prime Minister of the the UK has a statement in a locked, um, locked safe somewhere <laughs> that if the UK gets destroyed by nuclear attack, whether or not the last remaining people should return fire on the country that attacked yeah. them. And the idea is that you can't. The the other countries all have to believe that you would to keep that like mutually assured destruction yeah. alive, but also you don't necessarily want to do that, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, so that should be also our threat that we've we've put our threat about whether we'll cancel or not in a safe. You guys don't know if that's true or not, but give us five stars, otherwise the safe will be opened. <laughs> yes, dun, dun, dun. and
0: there will be nuclear destruction of the world. <laughs>
1: Yes, those four listeners we have so- <laughs> not have anything to listen to on their long train um, ride. Yeah.
0: Um, yes, and uh, opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. I think that's all that we say usually in the end, don't we? Yeah. Goodbye. That's it.
1: See you next time, guys. Bye.